Hello, and welcome to the 19th Amendment Speaker Series Podcast, an audio rebroadcast of the Speaker Series presented by the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association in the summer and fall of 2020. My name is Jennifer Leland, and I am honored to share the powerful conversations between successful, inspirational, and impactful women in entertainment, sports, politics, law, academia, and business. We hope you'll enjoy these great conversations and share them with others. We note that these interviews were recorded before Kamala Harris became the Democratic Vice Presidential nominee and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. These historical moments would have played a large part in our conversations. Justice Ginsburg's influence on women in the legal profession cannot be understated. In her memory, we share these conversations and pave the way for continued dialogue in service of a more equitable future. I'm Sarah Zapp, the founder and CEO of a company called Beyond Board, and I cannot wait to have Monica Lozano and Dr. Helene Gale. These are powerhouse women. And for those of you who may have actually missed the first one, we're really honored to be a part of this whole whole Q&A. This is a really special speaker series organized by a group of lawyers and judges featuring successful, inspirational, and impactful women from a variety of different fields, all in the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave the women the right to vote. So we're just going to have a fun hour talking with these two powerhouses. I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of a bio overview of them. And then we're going to have a couple of umbrella topics that we're going to go over. These are really pioneering women, as you'll soon get to learn. So we're going to hear a little bit about what that first experience has been like for them, touch on mentorship, touch on their insights on diversity and equality, and then finally get some good advice from them. So we're just going to have fun with this. Monica, Dr. Helene Gale, great to see you. Thank you, Sarah. Great to be here. Let me go ahead and first give a little bit of bio for people who don't quite have all the background. And this is not going to do you justice because you both know, Helene, you've spoken at our Beyond Board and have been great. And Monica, I have hunted you down. You both are powerhouse dynamic board leaders. And it also comes from from an incredible career to give everyone sitting there in front of their computer a little bit of a background just to make sure I don't miss anything. I'm going to go over this. Monica is the president and CEO of College Futures Foundation. It's a private foundation working to ensure that more students who reflect California's diversity complete a bachelor's degree for a much better life. She has an incredible extensive career in media, has worked at one of the largest Hispanic newspapers. Uh, She was the CEO of Empire Media which is one of the largest media companies that speaks to Hispanic communities as well. She spent 30 years in media, also as the publisher and CEO of uh, La Opinion, which is the country's leading Spanish language daily newspaper. I lived in Venezuela for a while, so I'm going to try to work on my pronunciation for you, Monica. So so call me out here. She's received numerous different awards from many different uh, boards, you know, for little startups like uh, Walt Disney, and then for other companies like Target and Bank of America. She was also named one of Fortune Magazine's 50 Most Influential Latinas in the Country and was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2016. So I'm so glad you're here. And I love the fact that you actually know Dr. Helene Gale, too, and you both have crossed paths. And to give everyone a little bit of background on Helene, she's a rock star based in Chicago. She is the president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. It's the nation's oldest and largest community foundation. Under that leadership, they've adopted a lot of different strategic approaches to closing the racial and wealth gap in the Chicago region, which is a very big job right now. For almost a decade, she was president and CEO of CARE, a leading international humanitarian organization. She spent 20 years with the CDC, working primarily on HIV and AIDS, worked with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, also launched the McKinsey Social Initiative, a nonprofit. My favorite is, is that she has 18 honorary degrees, also sits on the board of Coca-Cola, Colgate Palm Olive. So wonderful to see you again, Helene. And you, you have one of my favorite characteristics in a human being, which is generosity of spirit. So it's great to see you again. Let's get started a little bit. I mean, you guys are unbelievably impressive, but the very beginning of this journey, I, I know there have been lots of struggles when you when you talk about being trailblazers in your own rights and in your own fields, not only from maybe a racial or a gender sort of perspective, but just even often being the first woman and only woman in a powerhouse room. So why don't you guys kind of just give me a little bit of insight of what that trailblazing experience has been like for you? First of all, I guess I never thought of myself 
as trying to be a trailblazer. I had a family that instilled in me that getting an education was incredibly important and using that education in a way that could make a difference in the world was also important. And so those were the two things that I kind of thought about as I put together my career. And, you know, I think the longer you're in your career, and if you are of the generation that both Monica and I are, by default, we ended up being the first in a lot of the things that we did. And, you know, I am happy to say that I think I'm running out of being the first of whatever I am, because I think I don't see it as a badge of honor. I see it as something that says how much progress we need to continue to make. And so, you know, when I think about the different arenas that I've been in, one, just as an example, where I recognize how different I was from the rest of the people who I was working with, and that's in the global arena, both in my career in global health, as well as global development. That was a very male endeavor, you know, in the international arena. And that's true for business, as well as, you know, some of the fields I've been in, what it takes to be a woman in the areas where oftentimes men are favored because they have family and family support for careers that take you away from home a lot. And, you know, and so traditionally in the international arena, whether it's health or development that I've been in or international business or a lot of international careers, did not take the needs of women into consideration because it put women at a distance from family uh, and from traditional roles that women played. And so I woke up and realized, you know, this was what I wanted to do. It was part of my own career evolution, but I woke up and realized that I was oftentimes the only woman in the room doing the work that I was doing. And I still remember one of my colleagues after I had come back from an international trip who was saying, you know, when my wife packs and unpacks my suitcase, I get to kind of relax for my international trip. And I'm like, well, uh, you know, my wife happens to be me and I'm packing my own suitcase and washing my own clothes. I mean, that's a trivial example, but it is an example of how having the support that men often have in careers allows them to do things that oftentimes women don't. And I think how we start thinking about building those supports in, so when you are the only one in a field or you're trailblazing, you have the supports to be able to give of yourself to your career and your role and not always having to think about all the support work that traditionally men have had women to do. That's so profound, Helene, and I would expect nothing less from you. And, you know, when you first mentioned you don't think of yourself as a trailblazer, I had the exact same reaction. And my experience has been somewhat different. I actually had trailblazers that came before me. And I think back to my grandfather, who was the one who immigrated up from Mexico at the beginning of the last century, the early 1900s, and started a daily newspaper called La Opinion in Los Angeles in the 1920s. And after he passed, my father took over and ran it for some 40 years. And so in many ways, um, people have assumed that because I'm um, of a family that has that legacy, that it was just that much easier for me to succeed. And what I say is that access does not equal success. Even though somebody else opened a door, the ability to actually excel in that role is something that depends almost entirely on you. The supports that Helene was just talking about are so important. I know I had that in my career, raising two children, committing myself to a professional life that drove me because of what we were hoping to accomplish in terms of fulfilling a mission, being of service to a community and using a business platform to be able to do that, really just an extraordinary opportunity. But you succeed because you take advantage of that and you excel because you come prepared every single day. And I remember one of my very first board opportunities was being asked to serve on the board of a very large, prestigious private university. And I wasn't an alum. I wasn't a major donor. I wasn't married to a major donor. There were no buildings named after me. But when they approached me, 
it was because they understood that in order to be relevant to the community, they needed people in the boardroom that actually understood the dynamics of Southern California and could bring that into the boardroom to help them make decisions about how to serve students, how to serve community. And I remember walking into that room, I was the fourth woman, the first Latina. Private universities have very large boards, so I'm assuming there was probably 60 to 80 people in the room. And I had to just tell myself, Monica, there's a reason you were invited into the room. So find your voice and stand up and represent what you have to bring into this boardroom. It turned out to be one of the stepping stones that actually got me onto corporate boards, but it was really that affirmation that there's a reason why you were invited. So make sure that you show up and you deliver and find your voice, and that will open up opportunities for you. And I, I want to throw this out there to you guys. When you find yourself being the one that's not like the others in a room, whether it's because of gender, background, history, whatever it is, what approach do you take to, to elevate yourself and to, and to build those bridges versus necessarily pushing on what the differences are, focusing more on you know the whole or the similarity? Or do you not do that? Do you focus in specifically um, on your differences and, and, and make those known and, uh, and make sure that that becomes you know, an important part of your, your representation? I'm curious how you guys have done that. Yeah, I would just build on a point that Monica said. I think you know, remembering why you're there is critical because you know, I do bring something different because I'm a woman, because I'm African-American, because I've had global experiences, because I, I'm a physician by, you know, whatever the reason is that I'm in the room and I'm different than others, that is important. And that's important to not let go of. At the same time, as you said, I think it's also important to be able to be that bridge because I don't want to be a one note Charlie or one note Jill or whatever, and only be raising those issues. So I think, it, you know, I've always felt I've got to make sure that I am totally competent on the core work. But in addition to the core work, I bring something different. If I'm not going to use that differentness, if you will, you might as well have a white man in my place. So I shouldn't be using my spot if I'm not also leading with the things that I think make the contribution from my experience. I think it's a bit of both, but not letting go of why are you there and what is it that you bring differently to you know, whatever the situation is. I totally agree with that, Helene. And Sarah, I'd also like to hear your thoughts about this because you've done so much work around board and board service. But once you say yes to an organization, you commit your time and your talents and your experience to an organization, it's because you want that organization to succeed. So alignment around the mission and the strategy and the the long-term objectives is what you have to bring into that boardroom. So yes, understanding the totality of what they're hoping to accomplish And then I have always sought out boards that were customer focused, right? That were customer facing, because that's really when you have to ask yourself, do I represent the totality of the universe that we are trying to attract? And that means, you know, what is your marketing strategy? What's your outreach strategy? How are you communicating? Who are your messengers? Who are your influencers? And asking those questions about representation within your customer base, helps the company actually make better decisions and puts them on a path to success. And so, yes, you bring that into the room, both because you want to nudge and encourage, you know, better behaviors, additional commitments, but also because you're helping them understand that there is actually a business imperative associated with that. And companies today, as you well know, They are judged not just by the bottom line, but what kind of a community citizen are you? How invested are you in the betterment of our society? And those are going to be the winners over the long term. Yeah, it's interesting. We start to see whether first you started to see trends, 
with the way that younger uh, generations, millennials, Gen Zs would purchase their products. You also are starting to see that reflected in boards. You know, people like Blackstone and I'm saying I won't invest in companies that don't at least have a woman on their board, seeing Goldman's push or IPOing any companies. So it's interesting from a consumer perspective and from a, a board perspective, all the way there saying, no, we, we want to be a much more reflective society of, of who we are. And I think it's interesting to see how companies have evolved that way. You know, you're both in some of the biggest companies, brands that are out there, Coca-Cola, Target, Bank of America, Colgate-Palmolive, you know, between the two of you, Walt Disney, there's a lot that goes on behind the doors. And to push and make that cultural shift, that doesn't come (laughs) all at once. How do you find your best approach when you see really a need for change and you're in such a powerful room? How do you begin the flap of the butterfly wings to create that big butterfly effect? To begin with, I think it's important to have allies. So I've always felt like, you know, ideally, you know, if you take the boardroom, it is great if the boardroom numbers are such that you have, you know, three or more women and, you know, three or more people of color, et cetera. I mean, it's nice if you have a board that is diverse, but if you don't, you know, I think finding allies who can help you make your points for some of the things that are important for change. And I think having good arguments, understanding what is the business case, et cetera, all of those sort of things help you to be able to push change. I also think, you know, figuring out how to fight your battles and when to fight your battles, you know, it's like anything else. Timing sometimes is everything. And so, you know, I think by having good arguments, uh, understanding what's the imperative for the business so that, you know, you're really making a case that is in the interest of what your job is, which is to, you know, help the business do better. How do you frame it in that? And then how do you build allies so that you're not out there on your own and you've got people, sometimes I've got had people who let them play the bad cop and I'll be the good cop or else we'll change it around and I'll be the bad cop, good cop. You know, so that you're actually, you know, developing a strategy around it as well. I love that. Having allies, super important. And using data, you know, one of the unique powers of a board member is being able to ask questions and it sends, you know, management out to like pull that information and bring it back into the boardroom. And I'm very proud of the companies that I've been associated with because they understand how important it is to actually be true to the ideals of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Bank of America actually publishes an annual report just on those statistics and makes them public and owns them. And then we now have a process by which Twice a year, we go through every line of business and we ask ourselves, are you making progress? And it's not a punitive tool. It does have some accountability tied into it, but it also says this matters and we are going to monitor and ensure that progress is made for all the reasons that Helene just stated. Um, You know, you succeed when, in fact, you have people around the table that help you make decisions because they actually represent the consumer that you're trying to attract. And the other piece I would just say about that is, you know, ensuring that there is a talent development strategy so that the pipeline is constantly being filled and, you know, you're very intentional about that. And then I think the last thing I would say is, you know, when you're making decisions about, do you want to accept an offer to go on the board? your values have to be aligned with that of the CEO. And that's probably the most important thing is values alignment, because, you know, not only should they say it, but they've got to demonstrate it. And that's what I know Helene is, is certainly a characteristic of hers. And I think it's important to remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hear that time and time again with different uh, board members, with public or private companies that, you know, make sure you really know <laughs> the, the, the culture and what they stand for, because you are tied to that, whether you like it or not. And, and it needs to really reflect who you are. I hear that so many times that it's interesting when they go in for the interviews, because it's a really different process. You're not interviewing for a job. It's a peer-to-peer opportunity. Some of the best questions I found that board members have asked have been about trying to really understand 
understand the ethics behind the leaders of the company and kind of the things that they like to read in between the lines to, to really kind of get a better idea of what's going on. I want to change the subject and, and move a little bit now to mentorship. It's interesting because we just got a young woman CEO on her first public board, and she was turning to some other more seasoned board members for their insight on how to take this. Because at 32, it's pretty pretty young for your first public board position. And so she was really looking for some guidance. So I wanted to know, what has been your approach to mentorship? Did you actively seek out a mentor? Can we go back to what that experience was like for you and how they made a difference for you? People ask me that question all the time. And I must say, I don't think that I actually did have a formal mentor. You know, mentorship has become the thing these days. And so if you're 40 and and younger, you know, you were taught to go find a mentor. You know, I had people who were probably more like sponsors than they were mentors. They were people who saw something in me and made sure they opened doors for me. And I think that sometimes is as important as mentorship and then figuring out who do you you know, kind of mix and match and take, you know, people who I admired, I, you know, spent time talking to them, getting advice, asking for input. But sometimes I think, you know, figuring out, is it mentorship that you need? Is it sponsorship that you need? And how to make sure you seek those out for the differences that they are. When I look at the people who I think help me a lot, you know, they are people who open doors for me. And then, once I got through the doors, we're always there for input if I needed it. I think that's very different than what people these days do, where they have a much more formal mentorship relationship where there is regular contact and they're helping them shape their career and they're thinking about things like that. So, you know, I think both are valuable, but I think the big thing is making sure that you're finding people who you feel like they can give you good input in what whatever that relationship is. And, you know, for me, I've tried to now think about how I am mentoring and more intentionally mentoring others as well, because I think to me, that's an important role that I think I can play. It must be a generational thing, Helene, because I didn't have formal mentors either. There were certainly people that I turned to, asked for advice, consulted. They recognized something in me and helped um, shepherd me into, you know, opportunities that opened other doors. I recall, you know, multiple occasions just sitting down and brainstorming about, you know, what decision I needed to make and what did they think, but it wasn't a formal mentorship. I do have a group of very dear girlfriends. We turn to each other. We're all professionals. We have all sort of made it. And it's important to have a place where you can just not be on, but be authentic, be real, expose your um, vulnerabilities, how you've been pained. It's not always perfect. And sometimes, you know, you hit a wall that actually hurts and you have to be able to talk about that with people and, you know, share. So that has always been helpful to me as well. And the, the last thing I would say is I too am now becoming much more intentional. I just last week called up a search firm and said, I think I know someone who's ready. And would you please make time to put her in your Rolodex, interview her, identify some opportunities to get her into a board because I want her to be CEO ready. So I'm very deliberately thinking about how can I help open doors um, and nurture and advance other women, especially women of color at this moment. And I'm just going to throw this out there off the cuff. How do you feel about that quote? You know, there's a special place in hell for women who <laughs> other women. <laughs> just wondering how you feel about that one. Who, who was that? Was that Margaret Thatcher, Madeline Albright, maybe? Madeline Albright used it all the time. I don't know that she she's the first one, but she loves that. And I would totally agree. I mean, I just think that I delight in having young women who I can see will be better than I am and will go further than I have. And at this point in, in my career, that's probably one of my greatest delights is to see, you know, young, bright, and sometimes it's women, it's also young men, you know, but it's this idea that, you know, I've been very fortunate to have a, a good, fulfilling career. 
and make a difference. I want to see more people be able to do that. So I'm all about opening doors and we shouldn't be seeing it as a competitive stance. Like <laughs> there can only be one of me in the room or something going to take away. You know, the more women you bring in, you know, the better I think we do. So, you know, I was, um, I mentioned B of A and we just elected our sixth woman to the board and we were talking at this, they do a global women's leadership thing. And I said, you know, Catalyst says companies do better when there's three. Imagine what happens when there's six. Women. <laughs> <laughs> so I completely agree with Helene. And I would add that I am so energized and motivated by today's young people. This is a generation that is going to demand change. They're going to advance change. They're going to, I really believe, make the world better. So it's not just about advancing women, but understanding how can you create opportunities for young leaders to end up, you know, in the room and, and finding their voice and, you know, challenging the way we've always done things. I just had a call this morning with one of our young Black female staff members And we had a great conversation about what leadership means and how does she, in her role, recognize that, you know, leadership sits at every level Mm -hmm. and you can seek out opportunities. You can raise your hand. You can say, you know, I actually want to grow. And then it's up to us to part the waters and find ways for them to actually fulfill that aspiration. So I think we're in a great place. I love that. You know, and and they always say that the quickest way to get somewhere is to to surround yourself with people who are already there, right? And to see and learn, I think, when people are trying to, I don't know, get to a new position in their career or to change and evolve. I wanted your thoughts on this lifelong learner mentality and what you do to constantly keep yourself relevant, learning, engaged, because you're both in such, you know, active roles with such important companies and organizations. And I think it's probably one of your gifts of why you've gotten to be where you're at, just from what I've seen of your curiosity and and your constant interest in learning. What's your approach to that lifelong learning mentality? What works for you? How do you really embrace that, Helene? (laughs) It embraces me because I am unable to say no, (laughs) which gets me into doing a lot of things and then being forced, since I commit to these, to actually learn something so that I'm effective. You know, I'm probably one of these folks who does best when I'm really busy and doing lots of things because I love connecting the dots and seeing where one experience actually makes me better for the other one. So I tend to always have a pretty full portfolio of things and that forces me to learn. I'm just the kind of person who learns by doing. And there are a lot of people who would prefer to take a course in something or read a lot of books I'll do some of that, but I really learn the most by doing because then I feel like, you know, I have an obligation and a commitment to actually understand what I'm involved in. And so that's kind of how I continue to keep learning. I just kind of continue to take different things on. Well, I do want to thank you real quick. When I came to you to take something on, you gave me some great insight and quotes for the latest Harvard Business Review article that I just wrote on the upside of virtual board meetings along with Keith Ferrazzi. And again, to your generosity of spirit, just constantly sharing what, you know, kind of what you had seen. And I, and I appreciated that. So thank you so much. What about you, Monica? And you're in the media, so you must have in your DNA, have that curiosity, always, you know, asking questions and wanting to know. Yeah, I love that you actually use that word curiosity um, in tandem with learning because that's it, right? You know, it's being curious, constantly wanting to absorb more and more and taking advantage of every opportunity that you have to actually learn from it. Of course, you prepare, you learn by doing, but in every situation that you find yourself in, whether it's at work, your professional life, a board, there is something to be learned through that experience and understanding what it is that that you can take with you that makes you more effective, better, more prepared, connecting the dots that Helene referred to. Let's not kid ourselves. It's time consuming, right? But if you love it, it's not a burden. It's just how you are and how you show up in the world. And I was just going to say, I, you know, I think another thing is being willing to take risk. I'm looking at Monica, is she and I both kind of out of nowhere almost 
took new jobs that forced both of us to leave cities that we were comfortable in and do something different. But I think, you know, that willingness to kind of say, all right, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to take this risk. I'm going to do something a bit different that somebody else looking at our lives would have said, you know, leave well enough alone, you're doing fine. (laughs) But I think there's that ability and willingness to take some risk and do things a little bit different as well. I can't imagine that either one of you would have gotten to your level of success without some risk there. Question, you know, I was thinking when you were talking, Monica, do you have a go-to question? Do you have a favorite question or approach when you're curious with someone or kind of just like that tried and true one that you always have in your back pocket that maybe you throw out in various different circumstances? I don't have a favorite question, but I, you know, Helene just mentioned the work that we do. And I obviously coming out of business have brought a different perspective to philanthropy. But the question that I'm driving home is, is it big enough? Is it aspirational enough? Is it transformational? Are we doing the most that we can with the resources that we have? Have we leveraged them in a way that actually delivers, you know, punches above our weight? That's the question that I ask. And the other one is around adaptation, right? Change is constant. And so what used to work is not necessarily going to lead you into the future, And being in media, you know this, Sarah, I was just saying this the other day, it was, you know, adapt or die, because we knew that, you know, consumer habits were changing, depending on a printed daily newspaper that, you know, you closed production at a certain time, it got into a truck, it delivered in the morning, consumer habits changed. And so we needed to adapt the business model almost entirely. And so learning to get comfortable with change is the other thing. It's not a question, so I'm not answering your question, but it is an an attitude about being aspirational, but you swing for the fence. That's what I bring um, and, and what I encourage people to just think big. This is a moment in time, especially as Helene well knows with her work, this is a moment in time that requires us to not quote unquote recover but to reimagine and reinvent. And to do that, you have to be willing to think in a very different way and behave in a very different way. What about you, Helene? I always like to ask questions around people's values and motivation, because I think you learn a lot by understanding why people do the things they do. I also, you know, kind of to the point that uh, Monica was saying about thinking big, you know, I like to push people on impact, does what you're talking about asking me about, is it really going to move the needle? Is it really going to have impact? Or is it just taking up time and really thinking about, you know, is everything that you're doing uh, in some ways aligned against what you're trying to accomplish and being, you know, pretty intentional about it? I think in a lot of the work that I've been involved in that has to do with social change and human good, Oftentimes, people can get so focused on the process and not keep focused on what's the actual goal and are we actually moving the needle and is it actually making a difference? And I guess the other question I often ask, and I'm thinking of questions I ask my team right now, who have you talked to and who are you listening to? Because I think one of the biggest things that we often do in our work is to get so caught up with our own thoughts and what we want, and we're not listening. And that's, you know, and I think we stop really learning if we're not listening, and particularly if we're not listening to the people whose lives we want to impact in whatever the arena is. I really like that. Very smart. It got me thinking about networks and how do you expand your networks? And we know that networks can also be what precludes you from getting in. And so it's really important for us to be able to expand our own networks. The other thing, Sarah, when Helene was talking that occurred to me is, you know, she had said that, what was it you said? You know, I don't know how to say no, you know, (laughs) I always say yes to everything. I have gotten to where I ask people, why are you saying yes? What is the motivation? Is it the prestige of being associated with something? Really understand. And so sometimes I think it's as important to not just to learn to say no, but understand why you're saying yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Great points on that. I want to touch a bit on the diversity and equality uh, umbrella topic here. This is so much a, a lot of the work that you're doing to help even out that racial and ethnic wealth gap there in Chicago, Helene. And I, I want to talk about the concept overall. We see there's been a lot of progress. There's more representation. You know, people can say, oh, the numbers have gone up. But I want you to give us some perspective of how much more do we need to still do? How much more do we still need to address it's one thing to take one step. It's another thing to take 10 steps. And so I wanted kind of your perspective on how you think we're doing so far on this diversity and equality journey. Yeah, well, I think we still have a ways to go, but I think that I'm encouraged that this moment, you know, between COVID, George Floyd murder, et cetera, you know, I think there's been an, an awakening that moves from thinking about this as a individual issue to thinking about it as a systemic issue. And I think until we start addressing systemic barriers, we'll continue to have individual change and there will be individuals who will do well in their careers and there are fewer barriers for individuals. But that's very different than looking at what do we have baked into our system that specifically makes opportunities for black and brown people in this country different? And I think until we start examining that, I mean, you know, just as a, to, to be tangible, um, for one thing that, you know, we focus a lot on when we look at this racial and ethnic wealth gap. Well, you know, a lot of what gave people a start in America and gave people an opportunity for wealth was home ownership. Home ownership was systematically denied in federal legislation and in federal policies to African Americans, and then by extension, other communities of color. And so, if you take away the very vehicle that has been the wealth creator and the ability for people to have intergenerational wealth, and then add to that the fact that you're talking about a population that already had 300 plus years of free labor extracted, there's some big gaps there that are not going to be fixed unless we really think about what are the right both public policy levers, private sector levers, and others that look at the systemic issues aside from, yes, it's good to have individuals recognize their own challenges with whether or not they discriminate and all the rest of it. But I really want us to push for thinking broader about how we have systems change. I think until we do that, we're not going to really see change. And we'll continue to see what we've seen, which is, you know, there are individuals who are doing better and better each generation. But that's really different than saying, how do we actually, in some more fundamental way, look at the barriers and look at what are the kinds of things that we need to do to erase those barriers? I can add, because it's so similar in so many ways, Helene, to the work that we do at our foundation, which is about educational equity and recognizing that for, you know, generations, having a BA college degree actually translated into economic opportunity and advancement. And when you have a state like California, where more than close to 50% of the population is of color, and yet less than 30% are actually making it through to BA completion, then the question becomes not about the individual, but what are the systemic structural barriers that preclude individuals from advancing? And then addressing those so that, in fact, at least you have an opportunity to succeed that is on par with everyone else. And it changes the conversation because it puts the burden on the institution as opposed to on the individual. And what we say to ourselves is, if you constructed a system of higher education that is now you know, hundreds of years old for a student that looked like X, and today our students look like Y, we need to reconstruct the system so that in fact it can operate in a way that actually meets the students where they are. And that's the kind of structural change that we're trying to advance. Again, it changes it from, quote unquote, blaming the victim to actually reflecting on what are the institutional practices that are barriers and hindrances. So let me push you both on this a little bit. What are your thoughts, advice to me, anyone as an individual on how can I start to be a part of addressing those systemic issues? 
what can an individual do on their part to help change the system as a whole? What do those steps look like? What do those questions look like? What do those accountability factors look like? A first step is, I I think, just getting educated. I thought of myself as relatively well-informed about issues that have to do with race, racism, et cetera. But having gone on the journey that we took as a foundation, as we developed our strategy around closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap, I learned so much about our history, about how some of these systems were put in place, what some of the barriers really are. So I, you know, I think first and foremost, I think people understand that because we, it's not taught in school. We don't get the kind of education that really looks at some of these difficult realities, but realities nonetheless that have led to inequities that we see today. So I think getting informed, because I think it's not just information for information's sake, But I think once you learn something, as they say, you can't unlearn it and you will be different as a result of not you specifically, but one will be different as a result of it and will start seeing in their own life how they can put things into practice. You know, I think one of the things that we all can do is that we can vote and we can express our opinions around public policy. So understanding what are the kinds of bills, for instance, that are going through, whether it's at a local level or state level or federal level that might help to shift some of these things. So I think there's a lot that an everyday person can do, as well as whatever your workplace is, you know, what are the things that you're doing within your workplace or that you could do differently? How does your company spend its dollars? Are they spending their dollars in a way that would actually help to create demand for services provided by minority vendors, whether it's legal services, banking services, financial management, investment services. You know, there's a lot of things that how you spend your money also reflects ways in which you can make a difference in society. I mean, I think the education piece is a huge one. What are we thinking about in terms of huge college debt? Because you can come out of school with a degree, but if you owe 10 years worth in debt, you know, so I think there's just so much that once people understand, they can take a stand, they can do things, and they can express their opinions through public policy. I don't know that I have much more to add because that's exactly where I was going to end up is around policy. But when I first got to the foundation, and we took a similar journey as Helene, we ended up with a strategic communications plan that succinctly says, you know, what we want to do by helping people become better informed is to inspire them to take action. It's really so now that you know, what do you do about it? And especially in this field, I called it just to be, you know, sort of dramatic, the climate change issue of today, which, you know, connected to the racial and income inequality issues. Yeah, we need to expand the ecosystem of players. And each of us have universes in which we participate. So take that with you and advance in any way you can. As Helene just mentioned, there are multiple ways, including voting, including public policy, including workplace practices, including influence and conversation. So I would do all of that. We've got a lot of great legal experts that are joining us. And I always think that they've got a lot of great insights too and ways to be able to address the system and fight the system by playing its rules as well. I'm sure they've got a lot of great insight there. We've got about 10 minutes left. I want to end on advice takeaways because we all have different goals. Everyone who's on the call has had a certain level of success and education and has, you know, dreams and ambitions. And I want to talk a little bit about advice. Um, you know, we'll get to professional advice, but just life advice. And I feel like there's a lot of that that <laughs> that goes around. And one of my favorite things I remember from Oprah's magazine, she would always have, this is what I know for sure. Forget everything else. She's like, if there's one thing I know for sure, <laughs> it's fill in the blank. That was always one of my favorite parts of her magazine. What is that for you? The one thing I know for sure, fill in the blank. What would that be for you, Helene? That none of us gets where we are on our own, and we all need people and support both to, you know, help us along the way, keep us grounded. I just think none of us gets there on our own. No wonder so willing to help other people. It's not only what you believe, it's what you actually do. I love that. How about you, Monica? I would say stay true to your core values. 
understand what it is you're you're hoping to accomplish that is for others and you know use that as your north star the other thing i was thinking about this interview sarah and i would love to ask the question i remember when i was being interviewed i think it could have been a magazine or something they asked me to summarize in one word the quality that i had that propelled me towards my journey and I said, ambition. And I remember the reaction was almost as if that was not the right thing to say. <laughs> the dirty word. Women are not supposed to be ambitious. We're, you know, purposeful and driven by mission and, you know, wanting to improve. And, and I was struck by the reaction I got by the word ambition. And, and as I thought about it, it signals a level of confidence that I actually would like to see in young women that they can walk in and say, I know where I want to point and it's okay for me to articulate that. But anyway, I would love to get your thoughts about what is that? Is there code? I have a great thought on that, but I want Helene to pick your brain real quick on ambition. How do you feel about that word and and even reflective on the experience that Monica had? As she was talking, I was thinking about it because I think I would probably have not been willing to say that because, you know, you know that it is often frowned upon as a woman. And I've never thought of myself as individually ambitious. And maybe this is my own whatever trying to justify. I've thought of myself as ambitious because I feel like I want to accomplish things as opposed to I want a particular position someday or that I want to have people bow at my knees or whatever. So I have been incredibly ambitious because I have a sense of purpose. And to me, the two are very intertwined, but I don't think people often think of ambition that way. They think of it as he wants to be head of the class and it's about that person versus about what it is you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think there's such a connotation around ambition where there's a lot of judgment around that word where ambition connotates, I'm willing to step on top of you to get to where I want to be. And I've always looked at ambition as knowing where I want to go. One of my friends, Mindy McKenzie, who's the chief performance officer at Carlisle Group, she taught this to me. She said, know where you want to go, but be flexible how you get there. And that concept of being ambitious, but phrasing it in the, yes, I know where I want to go, but being willing to be flexible, you know, many roads to Rome in how you get there, willing to take a non-traditional approach willing to do what other people haven't done, or it may be looking like a different path, I always thought was a great way to approach the concept of ambition, yet be open to the opportunities and the unforeseen things that that happen to come along in your life. I don't know how you feel about that. I would just say, just like the word leader and leadership used to make me uncomfortable because the vision of what a leader was and how you were supposed to be a leader was not how I saw myself as a leader. So in the same way, I don't think we should shrink from the word ambition. I think we should reimagine ambition, if you will, so that it isn't seen as it needs to be somebody who steps over others to get where they're going. And I think we should, as women and people broadly, but particularly women who have a difficulty with it or people having a difficulty with women being ambitious, we need to redefine ambition. We need to make it something that is not about bad behavior. It's about, as you said, knowing where you want to go or feeling like that's how you drive your sense of purpose. So I don't want to shy away from the word. I want to own it and take it over and and drive it for what I think it really means. I love that. You know, uh, and Monica, I'll let you have a word on that. Shelly Archambeau, who's another big, uh, prominent board member on Verizon and Nordstrom, she has a new book out called Unapologetically Ambitious. You know, I, I like how she's just, she's just owning that. And she also has such a, a giving, generous mentality to her leadership. Monica? No, I love that. And I, I really appreciate because it's not at all costs or at any cost, right? It really is about knowing where you want to go. And I'm also a purposeful leader motivated by uh, a deep 
sense of sort of social justice, social change. And as Helene said, it's not about, you know, one person's journey towards success. It's how do we actually use the opportunity that we have to make things better for those around us? Yeah, I really love that. I'm going to each let you kind of leave us with an ending thought, a little nugget, a piece of inspiration, something that, you know, our audience in these professionals can use to kind of push onward and upward. So Helene, do you have a final nugget that you'd like to leave us with? Oh, that's always such a hard one. I, you know, I guess I just think belief in oneself, you know, is so important as people are trying to move ahead and think about where they want to go. You know, just really that belief in oneself and using that and making sure that you're prepared for the journey ahead. I like that. I don't know that I have a nugget, but just two things, because you talked about the way in which you need to be flexible. Life is a zigzag. It's not a straight line. So each one of those experiences, find what strengthens you, what makes you better, what you learn from. Um, Don't shy away from it. Um, Use it as an opportunity. And the other thing, because my kids are here, um, they're in their 30s, so they're not kids, But they've heard me say this before. The one thing that follows you for your entire life is your reputation. So think about every decision you make and what is it about that that will help enhance, not enhance your reputation for success, but that you'll feel good about um, in terms of your decision making. Well, you should both feel very good about that because, um, you know, in, in my board world and I get to work with a lot of great board members and leaders and executives and both of your names have come up multiple different times with uh, with great respect and admiration. So Dr. Helene Gale, thank you so much for joining us and all your work that you do there at the Chicago Community Trust. Monica Lozano, I am so happy to finally get a chance to, to connect with you and all your work there at College Futures Foundation. Um, you're, you're both really wonderful. And I'm not just saying that because I'm moderating, but because I've heard you both and, and had a chance to speak with you both. So thank you so much. And thank you for everybody joining. This is a great speaker series with more successful and inspirational women. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for uniting us. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Please subscribe to receive future episodes and please share with colleagues and loved ones. You can learn more about this series at LACPA.org slash podcasts. Thank you to the planning committee, the Honorable Nicole Bershon, the Honorable Michelle Williams-Court, Julie Gerchik, a partner at Glazer Weill LLP, the Honorable Samantha Jessner, the Honorable Serena Murillo, the Honorable Elizabeth White, and the Honorable Amy Yerke. We are grateful to Cecilia Gomez and Tom Walsh from LACPA for their hard work supporting the speaker series and to Lynn Florin for producing the podcast.